What's up, everybody? This is Elliot Terrell, and you're listening to Magical Thinking. Our guest for this episode is Anthony Owen. Anthony is an award-winning television producer and executive in the UK, and he's done thousands of hours of work on magic for television. Darren Brown, Paul Wilson, James Wint, whom you may know from an earlier episode, John Archer, and so on. He's also a renowned creator of magic and mentalism, and his new book with Vanishing Ink, Secrets, sold out at Magic Live, where he was lecturing. We sat down for a chat, and I'm sure you're going to love it. If you haven't already, follow us on Instagram and Facebook by searching Magical Thinking Podcast and Art of Magic. Join our newsletter at artofmagic.com. And if you want to learn magic or become a better magician, check out our ambassador program at artofmagic.com. You'll get exclusive access to material that's never been released or is long out of print, and you'll also be able to message our team of experts directly. If you ever need some guidance or inspiration, we'll be there to help. If you love the show, head over to patreon.com slash magical thinking to show your support. This helps me get better equipment for the show as well as enables me to share the podcast with a wider audience. In return, you'll get access to behind-the-scenes content, tips on style and carriage, and you can spend some one-on-one time with me. Again, that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Magical Thinking. If you've got a free moment, head over to iTunes and leave a review and rate the podcast as well. This also helps me share the podcast with more people, and I really appreciate it. It makes me feel good. Anyway, get into the episode. And let me know what you think by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. This is Anthony Owen. Enjoy. Test, test, test. Would you like? Hello. Oh, you? Yes. Test, test, test. Here we go. Normally, I don't do that and I catch people off guard. But one, you know that we were going to be recording before you thought we would. And two, this hotel room is iffy <laughs> on, on how it's going to go. But this is actually great. And the... The air conditioning look like, looks like it's going to be nice to it. I don't know. It's liable to start making a noise at any time. So it's all going to be added Atmos. <laughs> Last Magic Live, I interviewed Homer Lewak, and he uh, he was like, do you mind if I just, you know, go through and go? Because it was funny. Like, we got here, and we recorded in one of the suites, and... Again, the air conditioner wouldn't shut off, and he had brought these big sound dampening blankets and clamps, and I mean, he was prepared (laughs) on like anything I'd ever seen. And so he comes in, and we spent like, he spent a good 45 minutes (laughs) setting up the room, trying to get it perfect. And then afterwards, he was like, yeah, do you mind if I just go through the clip? No, sure. So I sent it to him, and he's like, yeah, I I bought the sound editing equipment, and I went through the whole thing, and... You know, I spent, I think I spent like 30 hours and I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. Um, so out of respect to his time, the one that I published is the one that he edited. I didn't have the heart to tell him that with my free software, I could cancel out all that stuff and it had basically the same effect. Um, but yeah, so. So if it starts making good. a noise, we'll just send it to Homer and he'll uh, fix it for us. That, that is exactly <laughs> the point is that Homer will take care of everything. Um, yeah. So thank you for asking me. I'm very flattered. Yes, of course. I, I'm, yeah. I am flattered that you listen to it. What, I don't know, I, I don't know who listens to the show, which is a weird thing, um, and kind of terrifying if I sit down and think about it too much, because I just put it out there, mm-hmm. you know, and then anybody can have it, mm-hmm. and that's dangerous for me. Um, so I don't like to dwell on it, but I'm honored that you listen to it. 
And I well, you've, you've spoken to so many of my good friends so uh, that, you know, I like to hear what they have to say. Yeah. And, uh, and then I got hooked on it and I listen to people who aren't good friends who I'm also interested to hear what they say. So, yeah. I, you know, I like, uh, I do like a magic podcast and I do like hearing people with a passion for magic like we both have rambling and hearing their thoughts and everyone's got interesting views and even people who I don't know, it's interesting to hear what they have to say and because we all obsess about magic and we all have thoughts and interesting stories to tell. Yeah. Uh, that's what's great about your podcast is being able to listen to all those stories. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. And and I I like to sit back and listen more. I was just talking to my girlfriend last night because she's like, you know, who who's here that you want to talk to that you're not talking to? And I'm like, ah, I just... There's a couple people that I'm just so intimidated by because I either know too much about them or I don't know anything about them. And she's like, well, you should you should talk to those people. They're just I, I'm a lay person. They're just people to me. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't know. It's almost like I need her to introduce me to yeah, these people, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, but we no, heroes are really hard. I always, you know, I always struggle to introduce myself to people whose work I admire that much. You know, so it's hard. It's tough. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and then, of course, you kick yourself if you don't do it, so you just got to do it. Yeah, you do have to do it. You kind of just have to... <laughs> and either they're going to say yes or they're going to say no, and, but, but, you know, both outcomes are fine. And a no, <laughs> a no is usually a not yet, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I got to... This is good. Thank you. You're it's helping okay. me. You're helping me right now. Well, how did you... What, uh, what are you doing here first? So we're at Magic Live, uh, and Stan very kindly asked me to come over because um, I used to write a column for the magazine on mentalism uh, and stuff that I'd created over the years, and uh, I've been working on this book with John Lovick and Josh Jay and Andy Gladwin, which uh, we were sort of aiming for a publication, and we felt like Magic Live would be a good time to try to aim to have it out, and it's been something that we've been working on for a few years, and so we've talked about... We talked about Magic Live last year as a publication date, and then we talked about Blackpool, and then we talked about the the session. Um, and so finally, Stan, you know, asking me to be here gave us the focus point to try to aim to make it happen, and we have made it happen. So that's been great, and the book's been uh, has been published here to coincide with me talking. So um, so it was great, and you know, Magic Live is as we were just saying, it's one of my favorite conventions because, like everything Stan Allen does, it's it's different and it's, you know, he always pushes his own bar. You know, he's the guy who set the bar and then he's the one who's pushing it again. So uh, it's 10 years since I lectured at Magic Live and it's great to be back. And um, I had a ball, yeah. So we did uh, the same talk four times yesterday and now I'm just, my work is done and I'm, you know, enjoying having people come and ask me to sign copies of my new book. So it's been great. How has the magic community and the sort of exchange of ideas changed since you lectured here 10 years ago uh well as i say you know stan's increased his you know it was it was a great convention i came to the first one in whatever it was 2001 and it was uh the best convention i'd been to because stan reinvented what the magic convention could be and 10 years ago he'd you know he'd raised the bar again and i come back and he's continued to raise the bar and is doing stuff that feels like it's different to any other magic convention in the world and you know there's been in the 10 years since then, there's been EMC and now there's Penguin Live and there's Murphy's doing weekly lecture, you know. So, you know, yeah, the way that magic is taught has changed. Um, and from what I hear, the magic convention experience is sort of going through a, you know, it's going through a roller coaster of some conventions are really down in terms of their attendance. Um, 
and but also that's because people like Stan and people like Josh and Andy and people like Richard Kaufman um, are increasing the bar and you know and the stuff that Dan and Dave are doing around live events and live live gatherings. You know that's just raising the bar for everybody else. So you know I don't you know I don't feel like people say oh magic conventions dead. I don't think they're dead. I just think they're going through as they should be. They're going through a process of reinvention and and entrepreneurs are changing the changing the experience. And not just, you know, they're not just entrepreneurs, they're just people who are passionate about how magic is taught and how these events are run, and um, Stan and Dan and Dave and Josh and Andy and Richard are at the forefront of that. Okay. <laughs> so I think that's what's changed in terms of conventions and live events, and then in terms of, yeah, people are learning online, you know, that's something that's grown in the last 10 years, being able to, you know, not go to a weekly magic club, but actually sit in front of your computer at a time that you choose and watch the World's Greatest Magic Lecturers by paying a subscription, which is the same as being a member of a physical magic club. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's really changing things. Um, and, you know, that's, that's changing the sort of magic society experience. And also there's a generational thing, but there's always been a generational thing about the social aspect of magic clubs tends to attract the older members of the magic community, not the younger members of the magic community. And that's a pity because, you know, I learned to be a magician by hanging around with those older guys and shutting up and listening to what they were saying. You know, I learned to be a magician by sitting in a car and going to magic conventions or going to magic societies and the conversations around the magicians that we'd seen by listening to the older guys talking about why they were good or bad. That's sort of how I learned how to be a magician, as much as I did by performing magic. Um, and I think that, you know, and, but now there are new ways of learning. Podcasts, video tutorials, um... And that's just a different way of learning that isn't the way that I learn. It's not better or worse. It's just different. So, yeah, I'm excited about it. And, yeah, I love listening to magic podcasts. And, you know, that's as educational for me as sitting in a car listening to an old guy telling stories about the old days. Um, but I think that, yeah, it's about it's it's the kind of mentoring aspects that some of the older members of the magic community talk about. Oh, we're losing brick and mortar magic shops and we're losing magic clubs and we're losing magic conventions. And it's kind of that one-on-one mentoring thing. But I think, you know, that does still exist. It just exists in a different way in our community in places that maybe aren't as, um, that aren't like magic clubs. Yeah. Have you found that, because I've found that the older guys um, are still holding things very close to the chest, but because information and secrets and knowledge are so much more readily available now, younger People, and I don't mean people, you know, in their 20s. I mean guys that are like, you know, 40s, early 50s, are now at the level of knowledge and experience that maybe the guys in their 70s and 80s were a few decades ago. And now it's, people are able to share more quickly and more efficiently. And so this knowledge base is trickling down faster and faster and, and, I don't know where I was going with that. I just, <laughs> it's a magic invention. But the, I, I think the, the need for the social aspect of it is still very important, but I'm interested in trying to bridge that gap. Um, I don't know. I'm just rambling now. But what, what, I mean. I think that, I think that magic forums and social media does provide a level of, the interaction that face-to-face does can provide. And I think, you know, and obviously 
people are seeing magicians on YouTube and getting into conversations with them and then having private conversations offline that we don't see. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of the public conversations that we do see, but then quickly that, you know, and they are being mentored, albeit by people who maybe don't necessarily know everything, but at least they know something and at least they're supporting to a degree. Um, and so I think, yeah, just, the, you know, the world has changed and the means of communication have changed, but ultimately, yeah, ultimately there will be 5%, 3%, 1% who will want to achieve excellence and will go out and pursue it. And then there are those who just want to do magic and love magic and don't care how they get it or where they get it or whether they're good or bad or indifferent. Uh, and so, yeah, there's support networks for all of those things, mm-hmm. which is my answer to your non-question. <laughs> thank you. God, thank you for helping me out of that hole that I dug myself in. It's okay. Jeez, these late nights and early mornings. It's <laughs> um, Yeah, well, so... Two tired people have a conversation Do, about magic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two tired people attempt to have a conversation. <laughs> to have a conversation, exactly. Um, it's not even a conversation if I'm just rambling in circles <laughs> and then you just say something great. Uh, but what, you know, for, look, look, fuck it. How'd you get into magic? Let's start there and then maybe we can... Sure. <laughs> so I got a box of tricks uh, as a Christmas present when I was five years old. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, I'd wanted a ventriloquist doll because for some reason I decided at five years old I wanted to be a ventriloquist and I got a ventriloquist doll. But I also my parents at the same time got me a magic set, and uh, for whatever reason I was attracted to the magic set and the ventriloquist doll got left behind. Well, your parents were like ventriloquism, jeez, <laughs> at least magic maybe that's cooler than ventriloquism. <laughs> exactly. So, but of course, the reality is that the magic set was much easier than the ventriloquism. The ventriloquism required real skill and was hard, whereas there was a couple of things in the magic set that you could very quickly do, even if you were five years old. So, uh, so that, and then there was a program on children's television in the UK at the time uh, called Alley Cat's Magic Circle, and there, I loved that show. Uh, if you don't mind, when was this? If you do mind, I'll just take this out. <laughs> no, no, uh, it was in the late 70s. Okay. Um, yeah, sort of late 70s. Um, and then shortly after that is when Paul Daniels first started appearing on British television, uh, sort of in prime time on BBC One. And so uh, I became obsessed with that show and my obsession with magic started and I started getting books from the library and borrowing those books again and again and again, devouring them. So the Milburn Christopher book on Houdini is one I remember. Getting a copy of Royal Road to Card Magic at probably eight or nine years old, I remember. Um, and before that, any of the sort of Norman Hunter books on magic, or uh, I'm trying to remember, there was probably an Ali Bongo book on magic um, that I got from my local library. So yeah, very quickly became obsessed with reading and learning magic. Uh, what was it about it that drew, drew you to it? Why magic? Not I don't know. Why. I, 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 for whatever reason, it talks to us, it speaks to us, and, you know, I suspect that, um, yeah, those Daniels TV shows, for whatever reason, you know, they appealed to me as a young kid, uh, and as much for the special guests like Hans Moretti and the amazing magicians from around the world that were guesting on those shows. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is that speaks to us when we discover the magic bug and we get bitten by it but for whatever reason uh it seems constant when we talk to each other that we've all got this experience that we all have where when the passion hits you uh it takes you over so that also that's certainly what happened for me and then 
Uh, I started performing in talent competitions and I had a younger sister, so I started doing stuff at her birthday parties. And then from that, I started doing stuff at all of her friends' birthday parties. So I sort of found myself on this kids' party circuit. Um, and then I was fortunate that I found uh, a great local magic society. And I, they had a junior section. And so I became a member of that and was mentored by some of the older members of that club. But also built a good relationship with the other junior members who were there too, who were still, you know, were still friends uh, and rivals. And, oh, great. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, and be, you know, but sort of friendly rivals in that, you know, we've enjoyed each other's careers as we've grown up together. Um so that's been interesting. And then when I got involved in the Magic Circle later in life, after I became a member of the Magic Circle, I helped the Magic Circle set up their Young Magicians Club because, you know, I think there is, it's important that uh, the, the mainstream magic societies should be, you know, supporting young magicians and encouraging young magicians and um, building networks in place. And as I say, you know, I think that works for, you know, those, those sort of things are right for some people and other people. It's the Magic Cafe, or it's Facebook Magic Groups, or it's podcasts, or it's YouTube, or, you know, I think people find their place, and they find their friends, and they, you know, and together they go on their magical journeys. But, you know, that's what worked for me, and, you know, certainly, um, it was interesting, you know, I had lunch with Paul Wilson a few years ago, and we were sort of talking about the fact that we were probably, you know, he and I about the same age, I'm 45, he's probably about the same age. And we're probably the last generation of magicians who learn how to be magicians from reading books. Um, and there are magicians younger than us who have chosen books and literature and magic magazines and magic magazines from the past as being the ways that, that they have learned magic. Um, but yeah, I remember being in my teens and getting my first magic video on VHS and that as a new way of learning magic being exciting. And now video is the content, you know, that is the way that everybody consumes most things yeah um but i think you know there's a richness to magic books magic literature magic magazines and people like james wen who you interviewed you know he's as obsessed with magic books as i am and he's from a different generation and so you know i think um there are people who still you know i think there's people who read magic books there are people who buy tricks there are people who buy magic videos there are people who just go to youtube and that's how they learn there's people who learn best in a convention setting there's people who learn one-on-one and then there's people who learn from all all of those forms and others um you know there are people who never buy a trick and just watch other people do tricks and then learn them and copy them so um the magic world is made up of all those people yeah i'm i'm finding the i don't usually go to the big magic conventions this i've only ever been to live and uh this is a great convention. I love the hang. It's it's great. Stan does a phenomenal job. But I have come into contact with more people that are unlike me here than I do at other places. And it's what you're talking about. To me, books have always been this sexy, like, I was always attracted to erudition and, uh, like, obscure magic references and, like, Knowing the literature, you know, all of that sounds very official and like I am a real magician because I own a book, you know, and that was always very attractive to me. But, you know, seeing and talking with people that don't feel that way, I am having to empathize with them and allow for that space to go, okay, this is why I feel this way. Why do you feel that way? And then we can kind of move in each other's directions. And I think a lot about like, how how to learn magic as someone who runs a website that teaches magic it's like 
what what can we do to help people get this so that they're not just copying? Because that's the big argument, right? It's sure. like you see somebody on TV or you learn it from a video and you just copy what they do. I mean, how many Darrens, how many Blaines are there, right? Um, and so I think I think books, you learn how to learn magic from learning magic from books. And then once you've learned how to learn magic by learning magic from books, then you can learn magic from videos. Because when you're reading a book... You're actively engaging with the thought of the prop in your head if you're not actually doing it in your hands. And as you read more and learn more, you go, oh, I hate this move. This is a cool idea, but I hate this. Okay. And while you're learning the rest of the method, you're already supplanting it with your own construction and your own thinking and timing. But that only happens after you have built a foundation. So you learn your foundation through books and then while you're reading them, you go, oh, I'm not, uh, you know, Eddie Fields. I can't talk like he could, but I can use this principle when I'm here and do that kind of thing. And then once you've kind of figured out that you're creating your own magic while reading another person's trick, that's when you go to video. Because now you're never thinking, great, great line, great body, you know, it's not that thing. It's like, oh, okay, you're automatically... I you're you're seeing the idea and immediately applying it to yourself instead of going the whole picture is what I have to now do. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay. No, I think that's uh, I think that's all. I agree with all of that, and I think that the other thing about reading is because you're filling. Yeah, it's it's you're using your imagination and you're filling in the blanks, and so you're not seeing everything, and so you're having to. There's a level of personal interpretation as you're imagining what this is. And often, you know, you can read it out. Yeah. I have created my own tricks by misreading something in a, in a magic magazine and thinking, oh, this is what it is. And then going back and sort of jumping ahead because it's like, oh, yeah, I know this trick or I know this before when I get what this could be. And then actually what I've thought it is is totally different to what it is. So, you know, in, in some ways, um, because you're not getting all of the information that you do from a live performance or from a video. Um, books are better for that. And also, the thing that Max Maven said to me once, which is about the, the speed of learning from a book, because you know I can learn so many more tricks by having a stack of old magic magazines and reading through them in the time it takes me to watch one old L&L video, in which I might learn four tricks. But I've got to sit through the performance, I've got to sit through the explanation that which is done at the speed that the performer feels that it has to be for the general magic populace. Mm-hmm. Whereas because I've read some magic or I know some magic, I can sort of skim, skim read uh, magic books or magazines at a much faster pace. So in terms of speed of learning, once you've got that foundation, reading's a much faster way to obtain lots of information. Totally. Um, but yeah, I think you know everybody will find their own ways of of learning, you know, there are people who are great magic performers that have never read or owned a magic book or a magic DVD or a magic, you know, or anything. You know, yeah. they just have obtained the the content and the material for however they've obtained it, and they're just natural performers who can make it fly. Um, but yeah, I believe that we become better magicians by reading, um, and yeah, by reading stuff, it's easier to put a personal interpretation on something and to try and make it fit your character or fit the kind of performing moves or style or or things that come from the way that you interpret it as you read it yeah but also and also another important thing that i try to keep in mind when i'm talking to people that are just kind of getting into it 
is they have to try on their influences. They have to copy. You have to copy. Because you don't know how to do it until you do somebody else's version of it. And then you go, okay, you start to understand why it works. And then you start to be yourself. You can't understand yourself until you've been somebody else. Yeah, Darren has a really great, exactly that point, which is, as a young magician, you know, that everyone tells the young magicians, don't copy, don't don't be other people. But actually, you're a young magician. you got to, you know, I was Paul Daniels. A different generation after me with David Copperfield. A generation after that with Blaine. Some are still trying to be Blaine. <laughs> and many, as you say, are trying to be Darren. And, you know, a hundred years ago, they were trying to be Chong Ling Su and Cardini. So... It's it's part of the it's part of the process, and some people will only ever be bad blame wannabes or bad Darren wannabes, and some people will be like Darren who finds their own voice and finds their own thing and and takes it and runs with it and become the great influential uh, definitive magical artist of our generation. Mm-hmm. And so, and the only way you do that is by becoming comfortable on stage or be, becoming comfortable as a performer. And the easiest way to do that is to emulate in the early stages. Um, and yeah, the point at which you turn from the cocoon into the butterfly and you discover who your own character is on stage, you know, that's the point at which it becomes interesting. Um, and it, yeah, it's, uh, it's a process that few go through, but for those that do, then it's great. When did you have that metamorphosis? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really think of myself as a performer. I just think I, you know, I like, I enjoy lecturing for magicians. I like sharing tricks that I've created of different sort of styles. I, I'm not, you know, I'm very much more comfortable as a creator and as someone who directs performers and produces performers and helps other magicians to do their, what I feel is good work. Um, but even so, you have your own flavor. You, I mean, where did you develop was it just kind of throwing all these different influences into a blender and that's anthony yeah i guess so i mean i you know i don't think of myself as a as a as a performer you know i have yeah I, as, when i lecture for magicians i have to get on stage and do my thing and when i do talks about my work as i sometimes do um then you know i feel like yeah i just get up there and and deliver what i am but i don't feel yeah, I'd say that you know, on my level, at my level of, of of skills, I would say performers low down the list, and you know, I'm much more about being a creative and being a writer and being a director and a producer, and mm-hmm. uh, much more of a collaborator with performers rather than being, um, you know, I haven't been a magical performer for many years. I just happen to have, you know, I get to scratch my performing itch by lecturing and performing for magicians and sometimes talking about my work, but it's not um, something that I spend a lot of time thinking. Of. Sure. I'm much more comfortable and much and feel like I deliver my best work when I'm behind the scenes working with people, helping them to be better. Are you able to slip into somebody else's voice and understanding? Because I would imagine that that involves quite a bit of empathy. Yeah, but also that's for me. Yeah, for me, that's easy if the person has a strongly defined character and a strongly defined sense of who they are. So, yeah, it's it's easy if you're dealing with. A strong, clearly defined performer. So you can you can think about what works for this performer or that performer or this kind of TV show or that kind of TV show or this kind of theatre show. Um, and it's hard when you're just trying to think of what's a generic good trick that could fit anybody because that's less interesting. Yeah. You know, you want to you want to write and create and collaborate with performers who have strong voices. And you know, and, and often that means that the stuff that you're suggesting they don't like because they've got such a defined taste of what they do want. Yeah. But the conversation hopefully might help them to find that. And then when they've got something, you can go, well, try this or try that or 
Um, and yeah, once you've got a good collaborative relationship with someone, then you're sort of in tune with what not only works for them as a character, but also what works for them in terms of methods that they're happy with and comfortable with and and things that they can make fly that maybe other performers can't. Sure. And there... Oh, no. I lost my train of thought. Um, oh, it, it's about when, when there is a performer that has a strong point of view, that puts all these constraints on the creative process. And that's where interesting solutions come from. That's where really good stuff comes from, is you have this tight, tight bubble... You gotta go. Okay, we gotta to mix metaphors. We gotta hit the target, right? Yeah, Darren talks uh, in pure effects or in absolute magic about the filter. You know, you've got to go through that filtration process. Or maybe Tommy Wonder talks about it in books of Wonder. I can't remember, but you know, yeah, it's a, it's about defining. You know, having a filter so um, so little work can get through because your filtration process is so fine. Uh, as opposed to just, well, I'll just go to the dealers and I'll buy any trick and any trick I can make work. It's like, well, okay, that's fine. And, you know, for people who just want to do tricks for their friends um, or, who, you know, who don't, who aren't looking to find a sort of a strong performing persona or a strong character, any trick will do. But actually, yeah, the more defined your character becomes and the more defined your venues become, then, you know, you're starting to filter your stuff because it's going to work for your audience, it's going to work for your character, it's going to work for the places that you're working or the places you're performing. Yeah. And what's interesting, I mean, I'm a big fan of The Jerks. I'm sure you read The Jerks. And what's great is, you know, finally here's someone who's saying, well, okay, well, here's what here's what the venues of the amateur magician are and here are, the, here are you know, it's all, there's been this whole generation of magical literature and magical education which has all been about being a professional magician and where professional magicians work. And actually, as Paul Harris has previously written about, you know, most magicians aren't professionals. And now there's someone who's sort of, you know, coming up with theories and a voice that's around interesting stuff that amateur magicians can be doing. You know, it's not the Henry Hay Amateur Magician's Handbook. It's kind of like, you know, here's uh, a voice for all these amateur magicians. So I think that's really interesting. And what's interesting about the stuff that he's writing about is... You know, from a sort of television perspective, he's he's thinking about venues and places that are outside of the world of the professional magician, and that's kind of the place where it's interesting for the television magician to be because you can put a camera and a magician anywhere. Yeah, and that allows the audience to live vicariously through yeah. the. Uh, and you know, that's what's always been great about the stuff that we've done with hidden camera magic because you're doing magic in a way where you know they're not even the people in the situation aren't even aware there's a camera. They're not aware there's a magician. And so, you know, you're, it's an interesting playing field, an interesting sandpit to be playing in that isn't just magician does trick for spectator, spectator reacts, which has been the sort of the standard magical narrative for so long. Mm. And there's nothing wrong with that. And has, has Blaine changed everything and reminded everybody it was all about the spectator's reaction? But that, you know, since 1997, that has been the way that all television magic has been. And certainly, you know, we've always tried to to move it on and do something that isn't just a recreation of the, of the blame model. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about some of those projects? Cause there are numerous. <laughs> uh, sure. Um, what was the first one? Well, even early days of, well, I, I, I'd worked in television before. So I worked with Paul Daniels on, uh, his last show for the BBC. How did that, that happen? That was great. Uh, same way that, you know, it's like, I, uh, wanted it to happen so I made it happen so, and that's just by you know making connections with people talking to your heroes letting them know that you've got thoughts and you want to get involved and you know sometimes they say yes and sometimes they say no and so yeah things happen because you make them happen so um, 
that's how that happened. Just, you know. Um, and, yeah, nine times out of ten, it's probably a no or there's no reply. And one times out of ten, well, not even that, you know, not even a 10% success rate. A 1% success rate is still, you know, it's worth having a go. Uh, it's worth sending the email or writing the letter. So, yeah, I wound up working with Paul. And so, yeah, I'd done stuff. And as a kid, I'd, I'd gotten television as a kid magician. Um, so I sort of understood how television worked and then had consulted on a few things and started working with Objective on a, on a kids' magic show with Stephen Mulhern called The Quick Trick Show as a producer and a consultant. Um, and then that was around the time that Blaine had sort of broken through on Channel 4 in the UK. And off the back of Blaine, we were able to get Darren onto Channel 4 and those early Darren specials. So yeah, Blaine, t- Blaine totally opened the door for Darren. But then it was always about, okay, well, how do we take it but move it on, make it different? You know, I think there's a, there's a difference between, you know, there's the copy, you know, it's about copying and then there's about inspiration and trying to move things on. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and taking inspiration from multiple sources and not just magic and not just magicians and combining those. And that's when you start to make something that feels different and feels like it's significantly different. So, yeah, you're always going to be inspired by other great work in your, in your, in your field and other great performers. Um, but you just try and move it on and try and do something different. So, yeah, trying to take inspiration from other television forms and other, other television programs that aren't just magic shows. Um, and so that means, you know, sometimes you have things that land and they work and sometimes you have things that don't. Um, you talk about your successes and you ignore your failures. Or try to. So, yeah. Um, you know, I've made lots of magic on telly and, you know, uh, it's it's interesting because it's a creative medium that consumes lots of content and so that forces your creative muscle to come up with lots of content. Um, and, you know, for many magicians, it's just about creating stuff that will work for them in a professional environment. So they're looking for a very small repertoire. Television magicians, video magicians, YouTube magicians are looking for a lot of content. Um, and again, that's what's interesting about the jerks because it's about the amateur experience, which is needing a lot of material because you're performing for the same people over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, and that's good because it forces magicians to be creative or to think about stuff that they're coming up with and having to come up with a quantity of stuff. And sometimes with television magicians, learning how to learn quite quickly a lot of tricks um, and, you know, write a script and learn a script and then do it and then move on and never do it again. And those are different skills to the skills of the magicians of old who spend their entire lives creating 12 minutes that they yeah. did day in, day out, week after week for different audiences. What are some of the ways that you can hack your <laughs> learning, essentially? I think, well, I, think, yeah, I think it's just a muscle that you learn. It's like, you know, it's like any muscle. You, you can learn how to write a script, how to learn, you know, this, it's the same process. You just got to do it quicker. But you've got a deadline and you've got a goal and you've got a date by which something has to be done. And for many magicians, that's the hardest thing. The hardest thing is finishing a project when you don't actually have a deadline. So, you know, if you don't give yourself a deadline, you're never going to have that great 10 minutes or have that great video that you put on YouTube because it's always going to be, well, whenever it's ready. And if you haven't got a deadline, then it will never be ready. Um, So, yeah, it's been the same with this book project, giving ourselves a deadline of, okay, well, this is when we're going to have it published by. It's given us the focus to do it. And having the deadline of having, oh, I'm going to do a one-man show, which is one hour. I'm going to take it to a fringe festival. Or I'm going to have a 10-minute act. I'm going to enter a closer competition at this convention. Just giving yourself a deadline as opposed to just whenever it's ready. It'll never be ready because you don't have a deadline. So 
by having a deadline of, okay, well, next Tuesday we're filming this trick in this location with these people. The trick's got to be ready. That gives you the focus to go and have that trick ready. Um, and so, yeah, you very quickly, TV magicians, you know, YouTube magicians who, you know, it's like, I'm going to post a trick a day every day. Just giving yourself that deadline forces you to put out the content and forces you to, 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 to build that creative muscle. Um, so I think it's not, you know, the people who do it are not any different to any other magicians. They just have the determination and the passion and the focus to, to do it a lot. And then once you're doing it a lot, then the creative muscle will get better and bigger and stronger and you'll be able to do it in any situation. And then the filtration process kicks in because through experience, you know what works for you and what doesn't. And also, you'll get feedback from your audience and you know what works for your audience and what doesn't. Because we live in this amazing age where we no longer have to hide in the toilets after the show to listen to the audience. The audience is there, you know, especially if you're in a public forum like on television, you know, there's too much feedback. It's like you can, you know, you can sit watching the show go out on your phone and you can see exactly what the audience thinks about how everything is done. Um, so, yeah, and learning how to filter that feedback and how to how to deal with that feedback is interesting too because, you know, that's a level of audience feedback that David Devant and Houdini and the magicians of old, you know, they didn't, they didn't have any of that. Yeah. How do you, how do you deal with uh, the feedback in a way that balances what the audience wants with creative and artistic direction? You just have to f- have the... You f- yeah, you have to find a place that is comfortable. Again, Darren has this great thing that it's a bell curve and you're going to have the people who hate everything that you do and they're going to have the people who love everything that you do and in the middle are, sort of like, you know, are the sensible people and it's hard to ignore those so you know you can either only listen to the people who love everything you do and believe that you're a genius you can people who hate everything you do and think that you're terrible or you can listen to the people in the middle and go okay well that's you know that's the gen that's the general feeling about the work and then you respond accordingly but ultimately yeah you've got to give what you've got to give and then it depends on if you're working for a particular broadcaster and they've got a strong view on what they want the shows to be then they will tell you what their view is and you've got a you know you've got a customer you've got a client you've got someone who's telling you yeah we love your magic but you know can you go around while they're eating the food and do the tricks it's like you know it's like do you do that do you not do that how much of an argument do you want to get into it's like you know oh will you come and do magic but you got to do it dressed as a wizard it's like uh, okay maybe i don't want to work for this agency um so yeah it's the same thing you know if you're working in a theater there'll be theater producers telling you what they think it should be if you're working for a television network there'll be network executives telling you what they think it should be and so yeah it's always the balance between the commercial and the artistic and what you feel you want to be doing and those are all choices that only the individuals can make um and that's you know those are the interesting choices and and success gives you the ability to be able to um, have a stronger voice in some of those conversations, uh, but also, you know, with great, yeah, with, with that comes great responsibility because then you ultimately, you're the one who's making those choices. Mm-hmm. So, stuff. How is that? How is, how is the public response in the UK to television magic affected the public's perception of magic? How? Say that question again. How has what you've done with magic on TV yes. changed the public's perception of what magic is? I don't know about what, what I've done with magic on TV, but what, uh, how has... I don't know if it makes a general change. I think that there's that great quote about the rising tide raises all boats. So I think that 
when magic is popular on television and there are magic shows that are rating well, whoever's made them, whoever's in them. You know, there have been points where there's been more magic on television, on British television in the last couple of years than there's ever been. Uh, it felt like every channel had a magic show, every channel had a magician. And, you know, a huge part of that was down to Dynamo's success, Dynamo's rating success. You know, magic was very popular with a lot of people making magic shows. Um, and so I think, you know, that has a general impact and The Illusionist was touring and that was selling out and Dynamo was selling out live shows and Darren was selling out live shows. So, you know, there was, a, there was because it's a mainstream pop culture, television can have an impact on the magic industry, the magic community. And so the, su- the success for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are periods where there is not magic on television and that has the opposite impact. But, you know, there continue to be big names in the magic community, that, in the magic world, that continue to sell and, and tour and have success. So I think that's no different in the UK than it is in any other territory. And same in America, same in Australia, same in other parts of the world that I'm aware of. High-profile magicians on television having a positive impact across the industry. And, you know, and also has a positive impact in terms of the popularity of magic within the magic community as well, where you see more people at conventions and more people doing magic and buying magic and wanting. So, yeah, I think that's the same as, you know, any any art form that has a high-profile figure mm-hmm. will inspire other people to enter the industry or other people to be fans of it. Sure. Um, what? I'm just totally <laughs> fucked. I am so sorry. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> I keep losing my... I'm like, the words are on the tip of my tongue and then they just evaporate. Um... It's gone. It's gone. What other passions do you have? And how do you apply those in your, your work? Uh, I love movies. I love theater. I love comedy. Um, so uh, I work in television. So I'm sort of obsessed with television and television formats. So it's about yeah trying to combine those other interest things outside of magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the visuals of movies or, you know, the soundtracks. Um, interesting theatrical staging and presentations of things outside of magic, interesting television formats that aren't necessarily entertainment or magic stuff. Um, So I guess those are my, yeah, uh, my strongest passions in terms of other other performers, so, you know, stand-up comedy performers and how they can connect with an audience, engage with an audience, um, perform in different ways that that maybe magicians don't um, could think about. Um, so yeah, the, I guess those are my my main interests outside of me. Okay, can you can you give like a few concrete examples of some of your inspirations and how that? Yeah, so something I talked about in the lecture the other day was um, because I work in television, I'm obsessed with television, and I understand the, the role that television plays in pop culture. So I've created television, I've created magic tricks around television shows. So the one I talked about yesterday was. Um, trick based around Big Brother and Survivor and that sort of reality television competitions. So I have a mentalism routine, which is a fun on-stage thing. We're coming up and getting dressed up as people in reality shows. Um, and then I've come up with tricks based around... There was a show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So I came up with a version, a magic trick around that, which is also in my book. And another one around Deal or No Deal. So taking the premise of a television show that the that, uh, your spectators or the audience might be familiar with and using that as a starting point as a presentational tool to get you into a magic trick and also and, and you know the, and as a creative exercise as well thinking about how could you take that and how could you 
apply magic principles to stay as close to that format that the audience, that the viewers of the trick still recognize it as the format of the TV show. Interesting challenge, but also I think it's an interesting presentational tool as well. In the same way that you can take uh, the premise of a movie or the plot of a movie or the story of a movie and use that as the starting point for presentation for a trick is an interesting way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way that Darwin Ortiz has his Hitchcock's Aces routine, um, my friend Ben Hart has a routine around Hitchcock's Psycho movie. Uh, I think that's an interesting way of being inspired by other forms and applying those to a magic trick or a magic presentation. Those TV shows that you mentioned were are game shows. And it's interesting because the people sitting at home are engaging with that going, well, what would I do? How would I do it? And so making a magic effect out of that is quite literally giving them that power and then going, well, but really, I knew you were going to do that the whole time mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. the revelation is going to be. You're giving them the experience that they thought they wanted and and subverting that almost, which is really cool. Yeah, or using magic techniques to enable them to win in a competition that they feel like they could never win. Sure, yes. Um, so, yeah, you can you, know, you can play with it in all ways. And, as you say, game shows engage the audience directly in a way that other forms don't. And so that's why that's a particularly interesting way. And, it's, and it gives you a fun presentation. For- so, yeah, I've always been inspired by those kind of things as a way of trying to apply those to a magic trick. And do you mostly work with mentalism and... I mean, is that kind of what you would consider your your wheelhouse? Not really. I mean, mental. I sort of. The reality is, I don't. I don't really like much mentalism, um, and I don't. The yeah, I I can. It can sometimes be quite slow, um, and that doesn't uh, appeal to me. So I find a lot of mentalism a bit dull. But because um, many of my close friends, so Andy Nyman, Darren Brown, Mark Paul. I've done some work with David Berglas over the years. You know, there's sort of people who have done great work in mentalism. I'm inspired by them. I thought I thought Canasta was a genius and Chan Canasta uh, had amazing work. Um, so I've sort of fallen into a place where, you know, because I know so much about mentalism, I end up creating stuff in that space and thinking about that. Um, and then I end up writing a column for Stan around mentalism. So everyone thinks of me as, as someone who creates mentalism. But actually, my book is, the bulk of it is not mentalism. There is some mentalism in the book. Um, but also, you know, I, uh, I love good card magic. I love good illusions. I, you know, I love all aspects of magic. Um, I think, you know, mentalism has some strengths to it because we directly engage with the audience. We're doing stuff where it's very intimate stuff and we're reading their minds and we can influence them. So, yeah, I think the mentalism can have an impact um, as we've seen from the work of Darren and, and others, you know, mentalism can have an impact on a modern audience that other forms of magic cannot have. Um, but I don't think of myself as a mentalist. I just think of that is one of the areas in which I happen to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting area. There's just, um, there are very few performers in that space who engage. Um, whereas actually, I'm, you know, these days I'm much more turned on by people like Juan Tamariz or some of the great, you know, Penn and Teller, other performers in other spaces who are, you know, who are not, who are mentalists. Uh, it feels like everyone's sort of doing the same stuff now. It feels, I guess to people who aren't innovators, it always feels hard to innovate. <laughs> I don't consider myself creative in that way. But it seems to me that... You know, you go to the conventions and all the people that you see are all the people you saw at the last convention who did the one before that too. And it's all the same guys doing all the same stuff. And there's no 
it, it all it all starts to feel a bit hackneyed, a little bit old. Yeah, which is what's great about now that you know we have the sort of democratization of YouTube, and we have Snapchat, and we have Instagram, and all of a sudden, any twelve-year-old kid that decides they want to share their magic with the world just puts it out there, and you know, ninety-nine percent of it's terrible. But there's 1% of people who are putting the camera in a different place and finding their own voice. And yeah, you know, there's most of the people on YouTube are just copying other people on YouTube and everyone's doing the same stuff and everyone, you know, it feels like every vlogger is saying the same thing about the same things. But in there, there are people who are finding their own voices that aren't the same as everything that's at a magic convention. And there will be people doing interesting work, you know, the Richard Wisemans and the... Marco Tempest and the people who are, you know, using that opportunity and using that venue to do interesting new work and mm-hmm. stuff that is creative and is innovative and they don't have to turn up at a magic convention to show off their stuff um, and they find their audience and they find their voice and they get their feedback and they find their fan base from this amazing new world that we live in. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the magic world is a bubble and where we have our sort of, you know, our small number of magic heroes and magic stars and they, you know, they continue to circulate within that weird world of magic and the magic convention circuit. Um, but I think we have to recognise that that is a bubble and things that exist and do well within that bubble, you know, don't necessarily reflect what happens in the real world. Mm-hmm. And we now have this amazing new real world where it's no longer television executives or people uh, who are making choices about what the world sees because... There's now this new generation of people who can share their work with a big, wide audience with great ease. Mm-hmm. And there's hundreds of hours of it being uploaded every minute, so you know it's hard to rise to the top of that. But I think you know, good work will always find an audience, and an audience will always find good work. So I think you know, through that, there are people doing amazing, interesting things. Um, you know, and they're not only coming through that form, but you know, there's certainly that is one place where they're able to find a voice and find an audience. Why? Why is it TV that fascinates you so much? Because, I mean, the way that you're talking about this, the, the social media and the rise of the internet, it seems that, like, I mean, it's all going there anyway. Do you think much about shifting, pivoting, or is, are you? No, no, I'm so, I, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm, I've sort of found myself creating video content um, because that consumes a lot of content. And for whatever reason, you know, I found success in that field. But actually, yeah, even over the last 10, 15 years, I've been doing interesting stuff in the online space. You know, it's not just about television for me. It's only ever been about video. So early days of YouTube, Barry and Stuart and I were doing interesting early stuff in that space. Darren and I have been doing interesting stuff in, in that sort of YouTube online content space for a long time. And now, yeah, you know, the, the rise of Instagram and, and Snapchat and those other and those other online platforms. You know, I think those are amazing spaces for people to share their magic. And that's why, we, you know, at the moment we make this show for the BBC called Now You See It, which is kind of a best of of all of that content from around the world, trying to collate all of those uh, online magicians, but also magic from around the world on television as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and bring a mainstream audience to all of those different flavors. So I think, um, yeah, people think of me as a TV guy, but it's just, you know, that is one of the areas in which I play. and uh, you know, it's possible to have commercial success because of television, and that is, it has been the sort of place where mainstream magicians have been made over the last 20, 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. But actually, I think, yeah, that is shifting, and I'm fascinated by that shift, and I'm fascinated by 
people who are coming up from that from those places. How do you communicate the the feeling and the effect of magic through video? I think that you can't, but I think you, what you can do is you can come close to it and you can do other things that are interesting. So you can bring magic to a big, wide, mainstream, massive audience of millions of people that a great magic trick would never reach. Um, you can... When it's filmed properly and when it's shot properly and when it's edited properly, you can give the feeling of what the experience has been like for the real-time situation where those people have been there and those people have had a real experience and they're sharing that experience through their reaction. Um, or you can deliver the sensation of seeing a great performer on stage, having a great live engagement with a live audience. You can show that through a filmed experience. And then you can do things in a filmed way that you can't, you know, you can put a camera under a glass table and you can show a trick from under a glass table when you could never put an audience under that table. Or you could apparently reveal how Darren was able to influence these advertising executives because you're showing a reprise of something that you saw earlier and you're showing edited highlights of that. Or you can have interviews with people who've made magic, talking about magic with a level of depth and perception that you wouldn't get in a live performance. So you can't, you can't match uh, the strength that magic has in a live situation but what you can do is you can get close to it and you can support it and you can encourage it and create magic stars who can then go on to have great successful life careers but um, and that's not to say you can't film magic well I think you can film magic well I think few people do you can film magic well but it will never have the magical experience of me doing a trick for you now one on one as a live thing mm -hmm. um, and you can get as close to that as you can but there'll always be, you know, it's a filmed experience, and so it will quite. Yeah. So rather than try to give the television or the video viewing audience the experience of magic, you get them interested in seeing. Yeah, and what you get, what you give them is they get the experience of what those people are experiencing, and you know, maybe that connects with them. Hopefully, it connects with them. Uh, but also it makes them want to buy a ticket to go and see that magician or another magician or any magician or go online and buy a magic trick or download a podcast or get into magic. You know, magic on television has always been, it's a way of bringing a wider audience to magic. Um, and I think, yeah, there are things that you can do with a camera that you ca you can't do with a live audience. And so those are the interesting things as well, because you can put a camera in places where you can't put a live audience and you can give them an experience of magic that is different, but it'll never be as good as... Trademark. <laughs> TM stand out. <laughs> um, you were talking about Elmsley and Ali Bongo in your lecture together. You have stories of those guys? And... Yes, yeah, so, so a million years ago, in the early 90s, I used to publish a magic magazine. Um... And so at the time, I, as part of that, I went around and interviewed some of my magical heroes who went on to become friends and people who I collaborated with. Ali worked with me a lot on shows with Paul Daniels and, um, and other shows that I produced in the years since then. Um, but yeah, so I interviewed Ali, I interviewed Alex, I interviewed sort of other magicians uh, around that time. And yeah, they had great insights into magical thinking and creativity and collaboration and just because of you know the things that they've done and the things they've created 
Um, so yeah, the things I talked about in the lecture the other day were, you know, Ali said it's important to have dreaming time. You know, you need to have time where you're just, if you've got a magical problem that you're trying to think about, you just need to get away from it and think about it. It was interesting in the session at Magic Live today, Nick Knight was talking about the importance to, of switching off your phone, switching off your email, going away and just, you know, switching off and that being the time when you have your most creative, um, thinking and you you know when you're sort of you're not worrying about the day-to-day -day, that's when you, you can be creative and think about your work and that's when the best solutions will come um and Elmsley said something similar which was about you know he didn't think of himself as a creator what he thought you know his his vision was that these ideas sort of floated by and you know when he saw a good one he took a shot at it and hoped that it was another good idea but it wasn't you know he wasn't in control of it it was just something that he was able to make these choices when the when they appeared in front of him. Um, but yeah, so they, you know, they were both... I mean, Ali was on who I was sort of closer to than Alex. I only got to know Alex uh, a little towards the end of his life. But, you know, they were both, along with lots of other mentors that I've had, amazing people who, you know, you listen to these nuggets and you try and take them on when you're thinking about challenges and problems and things you're trying to solve now they're not around. What are some of those other nuggets? Not just from those guys, but from anybody... Some of the things that were really impactful in your life. Uh, so another mentor for me was a guy called Patrick Page. He was a Scottish magician who spent a lot of time with Fred Capps and Ken Brook. And, you know, Pat would always have a very... And he spent a lot of time with Al Coran, another British mentalist. Uh, and Pat's attitude would always be to go for the most direct, most blatant, most bold method. Because, you know, he had a very strong on-stage performing persona and character. And he'd worked with performers who were similar to that who had very strong on-stage performing personas and they could get away with really bold methods um and you know some of those methods are the kind of things that you know i you can't use them on television because we now live in an age where all television ends up on youtube or ends up on you know on some sort of video platform where people are going to re rewind and fast forward and go backwards and forwards and and try and find the methods um so some i think you know some of those bold live stage live situation methods don't necessarily work on television but for those performers of of the sort of pat page style um you know they totally work and you can get away with very bold methods and i love a bold method in those sort of situations in a in a live environment it's amazing how blatant you can be and what you can get away with just by hiding stuff in plain sight and telling people to do stuff or you know putting stuff in front of people and they don't see it I'm always, I always love and am fascinated by the idea that because you're the magician, people around you will do whatever you tell them to do without yeah. question. Mm -hmm. They just accept it. Mm -hmm. It's part of the, part of the uh, exactly. It's part of the uh, powers that we have that you can. Yeah, you're the magician, and as part of the magic thing, you have to do this thing, and that's what it is. Sheeple. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Why I I still am. I don't know. This is resonating. In me today for some reason but why is it that some regular people see amazing i mean the stuff that got us into magic was not necessarily good magic uh -huh. it was not phenomenal uh -huh. it's not incredibly well done but then people see blaine or people see darren or people see dynamo or ossie or delgadio whatever uh -huh. and it doesn't i don't understand i don't know why and is they it don't get it yeah. Some people don't get it. Some people don't get why it. Why don't people get... Why doesn't every single person get bit by the because bug? Because it speaks to some people and it doesn't speak to other people and it speaks to some people at a certain time in their life. Yeah, no, it's... You know, 
Uh, I'm asking you for the answer. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Give me one minute and I'll come back. No, I think, you know, in the same way that some music does it for some people and doesn't do it for other people yeah. and some movies do it for some, you know, it's not... Uh, yeah. And also, it wouldn't be interesting if all people loved all, you know... Yeah, they, If they totally all got right. all magic. Yeah. You know, and I think as all the people you've named, they've all worked hard to find a way to use magic to, as a way of speaking to their audiences of whatever size or place that audience is. Um, and yeah, so, and they're all aiming to touch as many people as they can, but they're never going to get everybody. Yeah. Um, and they're all going to have nights where it's going to land with some people and not with other people. And then some nights where it's going to land with everybody and some nights it's not going to land with anybody. Um, so yeah, I cannot answer that question. No, I, it, it's, yeah, it's unanswerable, but it's something that's like stuck in my head. And I think you're absolutely right when you say, you know, not everybody likes all the same music. Not Everybody, everybody has their own individual experience. Um, so no, there'll be matters of taste. There'll be, you know, people of a certain generation will look at Dynamo and it's not for them. Mm-hmm. Or people of a certain, yeah. Uh, I showed Cardini to my kids and they're like, after about 10 seconds, they're bored. It's like, you know, it's just not going to, it's not going to speak to them because it's. You know the, the the taste is different, and the and you know for whatever reason it's not going to happen. So, and then you know at a different point in your life, you come with a level of patience for something, and you'll take on something that you wouldn't have taken something you know at another time. Mm-hmm. Mm. How are you enjoying Magic Live? I'm I'm loving it. I'm exhausted, but I uh, I'm really loving it. I'm I'm seeing like a lot of a lot of friends that I don't get to see very often from all over the place. And meeting some new people and and spending quality time with people that I really enjoy and admire that I haven't really got to spend time with. That's really nice. Um, Yeah. Thank you for asking. You're very welcome. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm still thinking about the thing. What's great is that I could just chop all that silence out. Great. Um, Or you could cut it all out, put it all at the end like you did with the Assy Wind one. Yeah. There we go. (laughs) Perfect. This will be another very long one. Uh, it's just you just hear the air conditioner <laughs> <running>. <laughs> four hours of air conditioning <laughs> um, well what are how are you how are you growing what are the things that you're excited about and still interested in uh, so it's been great working on the book the book's been a long time coming so I'd like to do some more writing definitely want to do some more lecturing more performing you know I mean I'm enjoying doing more of that these days mm-hmm. um, so yeah good uh, you know, for all the things we've talked about, the magic convention circuit, you know, I, I love it and I love being a part of it and I am enjoying um, being back in that world and having having the time and the and the, uh, the opportunity to do more of that. Mm-hmm. So I'm very much enjoying that and hoping to continue to do more of that and continuing to be creative around magic about stuff that isn't just for people I work with so I can share it with the magic community. So I'm going to do more of that and having interesting and exciting conversations about doing that stuff um, and exploring the new opportunities and the new uh, spaces that are out there to do that. And also, yeah, not just looking to do magic on television, but also looking to do more in the live space, doing more directing for theatre. And also, yeah, my obsession with the sort of, you know, the the new world of social media and the way that people are learning magic and teaching magic and performing magic um, and what the opportunities are for magic and magicians around that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there'll always be mainstream magic on television. There'll always be mainstream magicians. There'll always be mainstream entertainment. You know, I don't think that that stuff's going to replace. Um, but I think that you know the way that people consume it is changing. So Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and the SVODs, you know, that's all changing the power of mainstream broadcasters and mainstream networks. And I think that's good to have another voice that's out there and another home that's out there for people. So I think that's going to be interesting. Um, so yeah, all of those are the things that fascinate me and are currently keeping me awake and thinking about what we can do with magic in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, whilst also continuing to recognize that magic is something that still should be witnessed live and is a, is a live experience and what the other ways in which we can bring life magic to a modern audience yeah do you, what is your personal goal for what it is you do i mean do you have like a, a guiding beacon at the end that you're like this is the difference that i want to have made uh i don't have my goals are to do what i love doing mm-hmm. as much as i can mm-hmm. uh and to find other people who are good at doing the bits that i don't like doing <laughs> um so yeah so it's only been about yeah, recognizing what are the things that turn me on, what are the things that get me excited, what are the things that keep me, you know, keep me awake and get me up in the morning, and to do those things as much as I can and get other people to do the other bits that I don't like doing. Yeah, that's kind of my goal. That's kind of my, you know, what are the what are the things I love and how can I do them as much as possible and try to avoid doing the things that I don't like doing. Um, and I think you know when you do that, for me. That's when I do my best work, when I'm with people I like and when I, who I like collaborating with and with whom I feel like we do good work. And then when I do that, I find we have success and then I find people want to pay for that success. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, I'm not particularly driven by money. I'm not particularly driven by success. I'm just driven by enjoying the journey. Yeah. Um, and if I'm enjoying the journey, then, you know, it feels like I'm doing good work. And if I'm not enjoying the journey, then I just want to go do something else that I am going to enjoy. So that's kind of, yeah, I don't have a thing about wanting to revolutionize magic or wanting to win awards or do this, you know, I mean, those things will come and that's been nice, but um, but that's not the thing that inspires me or excites me. I just love magic and I love working with magicians and I love working with people who want to make good work. Um, so that's what, yeah, that's that's my guiding principle. Basically. Yeah. Just trying to be present in the joy of creating. Exactly. Right? It's because you can get bogged down by doing stuff that you really don't, you know, it's just, yeah, because something, it's really hard to make, especially, you know, it's hard to make magic shows on television. It's the hard, it's one of the hardest forms to do because there's so many things that have to be right and there's so many things that you need to keep an eye on. Um, and so if you're going to work that hard, it should be on something that you're passionate about and you love and that you can be proud of at the end when you, when you've made it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've never made anything that I think, oh, yeah, that is the perfect thing and there's not 20 things I'd like to change at the end of it. But at least you've gone in with a goal of and a vision of what it is you're trying to create. Yeah. How important is... Uh, this is a two-parter. Mm-hmm. I hope I can remember both parts. <laughs> <laughs> the first part is uh, how... Say them both now while you remember them. Yes, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. Is uh, how, how important is narrative when you're doing magic on TV? And then the second part is... What can you tell, let's say, amateurs about creating a narrative that they can use, like concrete stuff they can think about when they're trying to come up with a trick? Uh, So I think narrative is important not only on television, but in all long-form pieces, I guess I would call it, or anything. But even in a a short trick, you know, having something, it's got to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got to have, 
the essence of story within it. Yeah, but so people think, say that. Like, yeah. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. What does that look like? People don't understand. It's so hard to conceptualize when you're like, okay, I want to come up with a trick. What does it mean to have a beginning, a middle, and an end? People say it has to have texture and an arc. I don't know what that means. How does that, what does that, what does that mean? That's what I'm asking. Well, all tricks have to have an end. Otherwise, they're not a trick. Sure. So they always have a conclusion. They always have a moment where the magic has happened. Mm-hmm. So actually, all good magic tricks, they have, they have that inherent within the structure of the trick. So the card is chosen, the card is lost, the card is found. The thing is torn, the thing is restored. Uh, so, you know, all the essence of story are there, uh, but then trying to build a bigger narrative on top of that, I think, is a, is a harder challenge. Uh, but then that becomes about character, so it becomes, you know, the, the character of Cardini is the, the conflict between him and the objects, um, and his sort of tipsy, bewildered state. Um, so, yeah, I think it's hard, to, and then what's the advice for the amateur around narrative? I mean, I think narrative, you know, it sort of has to come from the character, so it has to come from who you are as a performer, and then what's the journey that you want to take the audience on? And I would say read Strong Magic by Darwin Ortiz. I mean, that's the best book I've read in terms of narrative and structure and conflict and all of these things for a magician and a magic act. Um, and sort of think about applying that to your work. You know, I think that and Designing Miracles, his follow-up book to that, are the things to read. And he's probably the, the, the writer in our industry who's sort of given the most thought to that stuff. Um, but it's hard to sort of sum it up you know, I think all yeah, all good all good magic tricks have a beginning, a middle, and end to them. Otherwise, they wouldn't. You know, they have. You know, what's good about magic tricks is they all have a conclusion. They all have a, a summing up. At, you know, they have a, a button on the end that works. Um, what becomes hard is when you want to take one trick and put it next to another trick and another trick, and then you're trying to have a narrative of a story across a TV show or across a, a theatre piece, and that's hard. That's hard. And so then it's about character and it's about the story that you're trying to tell with the character. In the way that Derek does, or the way that Darren does, um, or some of the work I've done with other performers does. Or it's about having a high concept. So with the TV show, so we did a TV show for the BBC for children's television, which was uh, a hidden camera, candid camera show, where we put cameras into primary schools, elementary schools, and we told the kids they had a new substitute teacher, and that teacher was a magician, and magical things happened in the classroom. And so then it became the higher concept of this fun idea, and then we put various magicians within it. And the story then was about what happens to those kids in that classroom. So that's a different kind of narrative, which is outside of just specifically the magic tricks. It's about the conflict of the situation we created. And same with The Real Hustle. There, the story was about, you know, can you take these cons and scams and scam real people? And it wasn't a magic show, but you're still creating an interesting situation uh, where you're creating a conflict around this person having... A con game happened to them and how they reacted to it and how they reacted when they found out it was, wasn't real. Um, so yeah, those are other specific examples, but they're not necessarily magic trick examples. So yeah, we don't know. But I like what you said about Cardini. I think that's a good thing for people to think about is like, you know, what what's the character identity and what is the narrative? The narrative is, or the, the character identity is like tipsy aristocrat. The narrative is magical things are happening to him and he, like, is bewildered by them. That's the whole act, right? Now you need a beginning and a middle and an end, and it's much more simple. It's like, okay, what's the first thing that happens to him? And then it's like a Rube Goldberg machine, essentially. Then it's just like, 
you know, the dominoes falling and what happens and then blah, 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 blah. And then what's the final boom? Yeah, it becomes a situation comedy of this thing that just builds and builds and builds and builds. And he becomes more bewildered and we become more entertained and amazed because we really know it's skill. But actually we're just enjoying his reaction to the amazement of the tricks. Yeah. Um, in that way that, you know, Gello is his own reaction shot because he's the person who reacts bigger to his effect than anybody else in the room. He's, as, he's more amazed by anything than anybody else. Uh, you know, that was one of the geniuses of Gala was, you know, how excited he got about what he was seeing. And Cardini was, the, you know, a different version of that where he was surprised by the magic that was happening to him and he was disassociated from the skill, even though he had great and exceptional skill. Mm-hmm. What is some of the... God, I, I quit asking about favorites, but what are the, what are the cons from The Real Hustle that you remember the most? Uh, the first ones that pop into your head. The first ones that pop into my head. I know I love um I love the audacity of the jewelry shop scam where you just sort of wander in and pretend to be the police and say that there's been a crime and take the take the jewels out of the shop. The really big audacious ones where you just sort of wander in and take control of a situation saying that you're some form of authority. Um it's a long time since we made them, it's a long time since I've watched them, so there's none. I mean, there's ones where, uh, you know, selling people, uh, renting people a flat that you don't even own, that you've just sort of got the keys for that day because you're renting it. Uh, selling people a car that you don't own because you've just hired the car or you've told people that you own the car. Those big audacious ones are the ones that I like. Selling someone the fourth bridge. Um, selling people a bit of land that you don't own. Because that is just about... It's just about the audacity of the performers who are doing it, getting out there and just, you know, it's literally the confidence of a con game. You know, it's their, their confidence um, persuading people to part with their hard-earned cash. So, yeah, those were always my favorite. And then, you know, the one, the skill-based poker cheating ones where Paul Wilson was in his element doing his skillful stuff, you know, those things were always, you know, they always appealed to me as a magician. Um and you know the fun and the situation of the of the poker room. Um, those were you know those were always appealing to me because that was you know the glamorous world of Erdnays and the card sheet. But <laughs> um, no, the bold audacious ones were always the most fun. <laughs> Did you ever use any of the? I've never used any of them in the real world, man. No. Oh come on! <laughs> no, I have. Come on! <laughs> Too much of an honest man. Okay, well, I'll just have to take your word for it. <laughs> How much did you say it was? Um, yeah, I, I yeah, I was, I was just telling somebody the story. I was walking out of the casino yesterday, and somebody at the craps players threw the dice too hard, and one of them bounced up onto the floor in front of me as I was walking by, and I walked past it, turned around, nobody was going for it. <laughs> so I walked over and I bent down and I picked it up. I walked over and I handed it to the lady and she gave it right back to the guy. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Just switched in. We could have just taken the whole casino. It was crazy. I was like, you know, because wow. there was no... Do they not know this This uh, casino is full of magicians? <laughs> right? First of all. And like, you know, I bent over my whole body. I could have done the most audacious switch in the world. Wow. And th- nothing. It was crazy. Wow. Um... <laughs> So, yeah, I was like, man, maybe you should start carrying dice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
just hand him like hand him back like a, a very obviously not yeah. the same completely guy. different color yeah it's like purple and sparkly <laughs> it's like from like a kids game or something yeah, you'd be pleasant you'd be pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised what you could get away with i'm sure yeah wow uh and and then you know how because the real you how many of these shows did you create the concept um i I've, there are shows where I'm credited as the creator, and show, uh, in recent years, and things that I've um, that I can say, yeah, that was my idea, and that's my show. And then there's other where I sort of a collaborator that's been a part of the process um, mm. and co-created shows. Um, and then other times where I sort of, you know, just have been happy to be around and help people to deliver great work. So yeah, sometimes I'm the creator, sometimes I'm not, sometimes I'm just. The facilitator that's helped get people into a room to make something happen, or has helped point people in the right direction to help their careers off. And again, I'm sort of happy with all roles. Um, often, when I, you know, if it is a show that I have created, I tend to want to be more hands-on and more of a control freak about it because, you know, it's it feels like it's my baby more, and I want to have control over it. True. And also for the things we talked about, you know, with magic in particular, it's really important that things are done in a certain way and. You know, every penny that you spend is important where it's spent and how the choices that you make all the way along the line to uh, so that what you end up making is the show that you wanted to make. Yeah. In, in regards to creating shows and making shows, how how in touch with <clears throat> how in touch with the guys coming up are you and, and looking out for kind of the next, you know. No, I, I get pitched by everybody. Everybody wants, you know, I'm in a fortunate position that, uh, you know, certainly within Magic, people know who I am and they know the shows that I've made. So they see me as someone who they want, you know, they want to work with or they'd like to work with or they at least want to start engaging in a conversation with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I get pitched all the time by young up and coming magicians. And that's great because I get to see what's out there. But also, you know, I'm at conventions. I'm online. I'm looking to see who's doing interesting stuff. Who's doing not very, who's doing derivative stuff, and it's you know I'm I'm very aware of who's out there and what they're doing, but often it's about um, it's about what's right for a show. So you know if, if I'm looking for a particular kind of show, I'm looking for a particular kind of magician who's going to be right for that show. So when we were looking for magicians who could believably play substitute teachers, someone like James Went who had been a teacher but also was a brilliant magician, that was a perfect combination and then you know the other performers that were in that show they were right for that show mm-hmm. and others you know with killer magic a show i just made for the bbc you know we wanted five different magicians who all had very strong characters that were all going to complement each other but also you know not overlap with each other and so there it was important that we found five very distinct looks and feels and you know very different types of magic and types of performer and one of the magicians in that show was a magi- uh, mind reader called chris cox and Chris was someone who'd been pitching me and trying to work with me for over a decade. Um, and there were magicians who came and auditioned for Supply Teacher who weren't right for that show, but were right for other shows. So, you know, it's not about, it's not about oh, I'm the next great magician, you've got to work with me. It's about the one, yeah, it's finding the right vehicle and the right venue, the right situation, the right kind of thing for someone. So, and then there are people who, you know, I've worked with for long periods of time and collaborated and continue to come back to working with as well because we have such a shorthand and we do such great work together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you want a performer with a level of experience and sometimes you want somebody new who's up and coming because that's right for the broadcaster or the venue or the theatre or whatever it is that you're working on. Yeah. And that also speaks to, again, that it's not necessarily a no, it's just a not yet. 
Yeah, it's a no. It's a no for yeah, exactly. It's not. It's it's a no for now, or it's a no for this project. Yeah. Um, so I think you know that's an important lesson for people who are looking to become you know magicians on television or in certain, you know trying to break through and trying to get into certain kind of shows. Um, it's an important thing to remember. What are other important things to remember? Be easy to work with. Be open to collaborating. Be uh, hardworking, passionate. You've got to put the hours in. You know, if you if you want to be a magician, particularly on television, where you're going to be producing a lot of content, you know, that's that's going to take over your life because you're going to have to learn that stuff. You're going to have to, you know, knuckle down and do that stuff. And there's no um, there's no avoiding the hard work of that. Nobody works harder than Darren. No one works harder than the magicians I work with on TV who have to do a lot of work and, and perform a lot of tricks. Because you got, you know, that's, that's a skill that you can't fake. you just got to put the time in. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that comes at a cost of other things in your life. But that's, you know, if that's, if that's the life you want to have, then that's what you have to do. Um, and also there's no faking the passion or the obsession with magic. You know, you can take people and, you know, they don't, if they don't, if they don't, if they don't have the personal drive to do stuff as well as it can be done, then you know they're probably not right for the project. You know they've got to be willing to go the extra mile, and because this is the you know this stuff's going to be captured on film and it's going to be out there forever, and this is going to be representative of them. They need to have that the high standard to want to do that to the best of their ability. And the and the shame. <laughs> yes, and there's certainly a magic community that's ready to shame them if it's not good enough. Just yeah, uh, yeah. I this I mean goes back to what we mentioned or I, what we were talking about at the beginning, which is that like this goes out to people. I have to not think about who's listening to it. Yeah, <laughs> um, we're just having a chat. Oh, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's usually what I have to tell people. So it's no big deal. It it is astonishing to me that people that I've had on who have performed all over the world, who have you know insane chops incredibly knowledgeable and they're nervous i'm like you're what this is nothing i'm nobody you know come on the stakes are literally zero (laughs) it's fascinating but people they care you know they care about what it is they're doing and Mm -hmm. i think that's wonderful and i care too Mm -hmm. uh but we're at a magic convention so (laughs) my brain is over (laughs) we are not caffeinated enough to be having this conversation that's true yeah are you a caffeine person? Do you do coffee or tea? I'm definitely a coffee person. Definitely a coffee person in the morning and tea in the afternoon. Except at a magic convention where it's coffee all day. Coffee all day. <laughs> do you drink? Uh, and then I'll have a little glass of wine in the evening. There you go. Great. <laughs> How has uh, being a television producer and magician kind of affected your personal life? Because it is so much work to be in TV. Hours along the... And then magic on top of it is such an obsessive hobby slash profession that you know yeah i mean i'm fortunate that i have had uh, had a level of success early on in my career that i was able to kind of design my life in a way that i wanted it to be so i was able to have a nine to five job effectively so i was able to have a wife and i've got three young kids and you know i've been able to balance that in a way that freelancers and people that are at different points in their career different points in their life it's i think it can be hard mm-hmm. it's hard you know and it's certainly hard for for famous people to have celebrity and success and and have a family life, it's hard because of you're in the public eye and you have to live a life and you have to be on the road and all those things. So, you know, I'm, I'm in a fortunate position that 
I've been able to have a kind of been able to design the kind of life that I wanted to have based on a career that I wanted to have too and a passion that I have and uh, been able to travel and do that and have an understanding family and but yeah it can be hard and you know I consider myself very fortunate to be able to do that mm-hmm. nah that's not good never mind um what how when you're creating for television I guess it I guess it depends on the show but say you're working on a project and you have uh, what what social responsibilities and obligations do you feel you have as someone who's putting things on television? Social obligations. We don't have to go political. No, no, I'm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have you know, as the producer, director, the person who's signing, you know, who's who's running the team and doing everything. I need to make sure no one's going to get hurt. No one's doing anything stupid in terms of you know. Uh, and, you know, sometimes magic's dangerous. You know, I've produced some stuff with Jonathan Goodwin, which is crazy stuff, where he's been in a dangerous situation, and ultimately it's up to, you know, me and him to make sure that he's okay. Uh, and, you know, have done lots of dangerous tricks over the years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so my first obligation is nobody gets hurt, nobody gets injured, nobody gets killed. Um, and then, yeah, there's sort of obligations beyond that to make sure that the viewers don't try and copy what they're seeing or... Uh, and that's particularly hard with around children's television, mm-hmm. um, because often magic involves a level of risk or a level of danger. That's one of the classic conflicts in magic: is that you know we talk about doing stuff that is potentially dangerous. Um, so that's always hard. And that's just about yeah, trying to motivate the team and keep people upbeat and try and keep people on schedule and on time and deliver the program that is the vision of the program that you've sold to the broadcaster or have agreed with the performer or the producers or whoever it is you're working with. Um, yeah, so it's about yeah, it's about your standards around what is the work that you're trying to do and then how you do that on time, on budget, and without killing anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and sometimes that is a genuine requirement of the day. It's like, okay, how are we going to do this trick in a way where nobody gets killed? Uh, it's still really scary television to watch. But so far. So far. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Goodwin was talking earlier today about some of the stuff we've done together. And we've certainly uh, done some scary, dangerous things where he's uh, he's got injured to a level of acceptable failure. <laughs> well, I feel pretty good. Uh, I, I just honestly could have gone better. <laughs> but I take full responsibility for that. But I really appreciate you sitting down with me for this. And uh, I'm flattered to be asked. I'm happy to. Uh, yeah, it's been It's been great chatting with you. I was trying to remember what, what your final questions. They're always the same. I, was, I haven't. Th- I'm thinking. Oh yeah, I must plan my answers for these, and then I can't even remember what they are. Well, then I'll mix it up so that even <laughs> if you had planned them, you wouldn't get. What uh, What's your favorite magic book? What's my favorite magic book? Um, mm. one favorite magic. So my favorite magic. So I love anything by Juan Tamariz. So all of his books. I love the Books of Wonder by Tommy Wonder and Stephen Minch. Mm-hmm. I love anything by Darwin Ortiz on theory. I love Ken Weber's Maximum Entertainment. Uh, I love the Royal Road to Card Magic because it was one of the first books I got that was a proper real magic book. Um, plug your book. <laughs> I, I'm not going to plug my own book. I'll let, other pe- I'll let other people... I've plugged my own book enough. I think we did that earlier. Um... So no, into those those are uh, Henning Nelms Magic and Showmanship is still up there, I think. Mm. Um, There's a lot of theory in here. 
You know, no, I'm definitely, I'm definitely, I have an obsession with magic theory. Yeah. But it's sort of magic theory in practice. How so? Um, well, just into, you know, in terms of the Tommy Wonder books, the theory always relates to a trick or it always relates to, you know, he always made a way of, it wasn't just theoretical for theoretical sake. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Ken Weber's books, you know, it's all practical examples as opposed to theoretical examples. Because I think those are the things that anybody can apply to anything they're doing. It's not just about, um, it's not theory in isolation. It's all it's all applied theory that's mm. to make anything we're doing better mm-hmm. and all worth thinking of. Yeah, and again, you know, even Tamara's in Five Points of Magic is always giving you specific examples for how the things he's talking about can relate to your. So I think those are my favorite magic. favorite non magic books. Favorite non magic books. Uh, I'm a big fan of the author Nick Hornby, so I've read all of his stuff. Anything that he puts out, I read. Um, yeah, I'd say anything by Nick. Great. What's the? What is that? What is that? He is a London-based uh, author writing about contemporary London. So characters. So he wrote uh, the movie High Fidelity. Okay. Jack Black is in. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a movie called About a Boy. Um, yeah, he's a kind of modern lit uh, contemporary writer writing about London life. That's so. really cool. I like that. That sounds. That sounds yeah, and I think you'd like some of his stuff. You should read High Fidelity. It's one of my favorites. Oh, great! Thank you for the recommendation. It sounds amazing. Um, favorite film? Favorite films? Uh, E.T. because it was one of the first films I saw in the cinema. Huh. It made me cry. Uh, I love anything by Woody Allen. Um, so I love Manhattan. I love Purple Rose of Cairo. Um, and yeah. Um, I love Citizen Kane. Big Awesome Wells fan. Um, those are kind of my top three, top three or four. Okay. Yeah. All right. Favorite TV? You know, I feel like mm-hmm. that should be one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think David Blaine's first TV special changed everything. I think it still stands up as being a great piece of television. And I think his most recent special stands up as being a great bit of television. Some of Penn and Teller's TV stuff. Uh, some of Paul Daniels' TV stuff, some of Copperfield's TV stuff, some of Tamaris's TV appearances, um, some of Sadowitz, some of Malika. Yeah, I think there's yeah, there's a lot of TV magic that I love. But it's my genre, so yeah. Uh, and I'm t- specifically not talking about anything that I've made. So, but you know, I think some of Darren's stuff is is up there as well. Well, please recommend something that people might not have seen from Darren. Oh, uh, I think Russian Roulette is still one of the yeah, is still. Worth a watch. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Oh, okay. um, yeah, great. And then the last question is, what was the... What? Please tell the story of the time that you can remember where you were just totally baffled, completely astonished. It felt like your head had been shaken in somebody's hand. Um, or a time that you were fooled really hard. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think. It's good. It's it's probably going to be a one Tamaris experience. I'm just trying to remember which one it would. Um, yeah, I can't remember any specific trick, but probably the first time that I saw Tamaris live, it was left with a draw on the floor. Where was it? Do you remember? Probably would have been at a uh, magic convention in London. Probably the Romans. The times when I've been, yeah, properly, properly. That's amazing. <laughs> He's been the answer so many times. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure he has. He's. Uh... I've even gotten the same story from two different people. Which is pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Thanks so much for listening to Magical Thinking. If you enjoyed the show, head over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash magicalthinking, and become a patron to support the show and get access to exclusive content. Feel free to interact with me on Patreon, through the Facebook group, which you can find by searching Magical Thinking, or by emailing podcast at artofmagic.com. Follow us on all the social media channels and tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers.